Um, Ephesians chapter 4, if you'd turn there. Ephesians chapter 4. In the first service, I was kind of joking that um, I was driving to work this morning. Driving to work. Uh, driving to church. And uh, how many of you guys went by all those signs of like marathon race signs? Did you guys see those this morning? It really made me bitter, the amount of healthy people in Bend. Like, I was just cursing. I was like, really? There's just way too many healthy people in Bend. Um, what we need in Bend are less marathons and more hot dog eating competitions. Uh, I mean, when was the last time you saw a hot dog eating competition in Bend? Um, we really have our priorities wrong. Um, anyways, um, so happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you guys get a chance to spend time with family and reflect and do a lot of great things that way. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4 is kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll just dive in. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 25, but the second half of this paragraph is where I really want to camp. But verse 25 of Ephesians 4 says this, there ha- Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this morning in the first service, I was all over the map. (laughs) I, I had a lot I wanted to talk about, and I didn't really know how to package it. Um, that's the beauty of two services. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning, and then we'll kind of, we'll, I'll tell you the two things, and then we'll, we'll kind of take them one at a time. But the first one um, is responsibility. The second thing is reconciliation. Okay? Um, that's where we're going today. First one, responsibility. So a couple words about that. There's a real tension that we have in understanding Scripture from a balanced standpoint. Um, Because there are two things that work in harmony, but they're they're two halves of a whole that complement each other. And the first one is the law. And the second one is grace. The first one is the Old Testament, which has a lot of grace in it, but but the overarching thing that's going on here is the law, uh, the law and the prophets. So you have the the law, and then in the New Testament, you have a a covenant of grace. Um, You have grace. And so you have these two things taking up two different portions of the Bible. But if we really want to understand how these things play themselves out, the one we have to understand um, is the law. Because grace comes into this environment of the law and acts within that environment of the law. Does that make sense? It comes subsequent to it and acts in that environment. So we have to understand what really was going on with the law. And the question I want to ask is, why are there laws? What, what's the purpose of laws? What's the purpose of rules? What's the purpose of moral codes? What's the purpose of God giving us things, uh, commanding us to... Uh, act out justly and to fight for the marginalized or the disenfranchised? Why, why do those things exist? And the thing that I think we have to realize is all rules, all laws point to something outside of themselves. They're not spiritual things that are on some kind of an um, obedience checklist that we check off as we obey them. What's the purpose of the law? I don't know, but I did it. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're not on a checklist. They all point to something else. They all point, if I can kind of summarize, they all point toward goodness, wholeness, unity, um, 
flourishing, truth, joy, what God intended to be. So when we act out God's laws, we're in some sense coming to the middle of where goodness actually exists, how things ought to be. And when we neglect those laws, when we disobey those laws, we're, we're finding ourselves out on the periphery where we're, we're either entertaining or contributing to a state of affairs different than shalom, which is kind of the, the Hebrew word for peace, which is really everything's being, uh, everything being the way that it ought to be or can be or should be. Does that make sense? Here's where potential is and goodness is. So these rules or laws exist for a reason. I, I'm fond of saying that when a yield sign is there, it's not there to tyrannize you. You know, when you get to a yield sign at one of these roundabouts, you know, when was the last time you like cursed it and raised your fist? You know, it's the man trying to tell me what I cannot do and what I can do. And, you know, and, and I refuse to, you know, the yield sign is so you don't get T-boned in, in the, the traffic circle. That, that's why it's there. It, it serves a purpose and that purpose is good. Does that make sense? Um, I was thinking about it yesterday and, and when I, I went to Clemson University, I had a, a freshman roommate. My roommate freshman year um, was in an absolutely different major than, than I was. I was forced into engineering. Some of you know the story. Um, he was in a major called PRTM. Anybody ever heard of that? Raise your hand if you have. I <laughs> love it. Um, Parks, Recreation, Tour, Management. Okay? It's the catch-all at Clemson. None of you have even heard of it. Okay? Um, if you got the football roster, it's like, the whole defensive squad, you know, like PRTM, 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 right? Um, so I'm in engineering, and, and this is my freshman year roommate, and I would come back from like a chem chemistry exam. In chemistry, freshman year engineering was the weed-out class. Uh, you know, you, you, like the, the curve was like at a 60 or a 58. It was ridiculous. It was how they got um, three-quarters of the engineering students to drop out, you know? So I'd come back getting like a 60 on a chemistry test. And he's talking about getting an A or an A minus um, on his tests. And, and I quickly began to realize that it doesn't matter if you get an A in PRTM. Okay? It, it, it's a check mark or a grade that connects with nothing. Okay? Um, and I, I, I realized, you know, like kind of thinking through this, a lot of Christians think that this is like spiritual PRTM. And the rules and, and the commands and the laws and all that, you know, they're nice things and, and we can do some of them, not do some of them, and, and, and get our checks or our A pluses. But, you know, that's really all it is, is, is that is, is kind of going through the motions. And they don't realize that those grades actually matter because it's actually connected to, to something real and something important. The other thing we do is we tend to pick and choose which laws. Uh, we're like kind of when you're playing those card games and, you know, you're getting draws and you're like, no, I don't like that draw, I don't like that draw. And like, oh, Jack, I want the Jack. You know, and it's like we read through the Bible like, oh, no, I don't like that one. Oh, no, I don't like that one. Oh, no, I, I don't want to have to do that. Oh, shake the dust off my feet and curse my unbelieving friend. Ah, oh, absolutely, I'll take that on. You know, somebody's got to do it, and I'll suffer for the kingdom, right? Um, but we kind, of, we kind of treat things lightly, so we do that too with the law. But again, because we don't understand that it's not just finding some and doing them. They all, all of them, every single one of them, are significant at bringing about the state of affairs that ought to be or can be or should be, that we have some kind of obligation toward. Does that make sense? The other thing we do uh, is we kind of play the, the game of, and we all know this, like I'm, I'm basically good. Even though I know that I'm gossiping, even though I know that I'm doing like, you know, things I shouldn't be doing, look at all these other things that I'm good at. You know, I got a big Bible. It's got, you know, leather and, you know, I, I read, you know, I, I do a lot of good Christian things. And so the volume of this is really what matters, not not whether I do that, because, you know, frankly, look, I mean, you can't expect me to do everything. I'm just not going to do that, you know? Like, we, we kind of tend to subconsciously interact that way with, with God's commands, don't we? I had a professor in seminary who was very fond of saying that Americans would rather have a bucket full of manure than a thimble full of gold, that, that we just like 
<laughs> quantity um, rather than value, you know? And I think sometimes we do that with the Bible. Like, hey, I'm just going to take a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't matter um, whether I do things of value that, that are just kind of one particular. We just kind of go with the, the more is more idea. Does that make sense? Again, it's because we don't really understand the law. And so when we don't understand the law, you get preachers that want to come in and talk about the law because, man, the law matters. These things matter. They point to something. And so a preacher will feel like, man, I've got to come in and preach the law. And then what happens is um, everyone feels guilty and sticky and like they've been vomited on by the preacher. And, and there's just, it's life. It sucks the life out of you, right? Like, man, I've got to just duty, 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 go out and, and do this thing. And, and so if a preacher knows that, and he's like, man, um, I don't want to do that, so I need to talk about grace, which is the New Testament. And then he comes in, and he's like, man, all your sins are forgiven, and God doesn't hold things against you, and it's all good. And then people are like um, thinking they're listening to Joel Osteen, and then they're walking out with just big smiles on their face, like nothing really matters other than praying about getting rich. And, and you know what I'm saying? And it's like we take this like out of context. And what we got to realize is they're both a part of the gospel. They're both a, both a part of the gospel. And so we have to learn how to talk to each other in the middle ground here of, man, God, God's rules matter, and there's effects to sin, and there's effects to us just willfully choosing not to care about living a certain kind of life. And, but yet there's also grace that sustains and shapes and forgives and encourages and gets us excited. And so I want to show you how these things kind of blend together. Look back at Ephesians 4 with me. Verse, uh, verse 29 again. So Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. When do we normally hear the word grace in, in the context of what conversation? What's the theological thing that we're usually talking about when we then bring in the word grace? You guys are whispering. Forgiveness of sin, salvation. What's the broader context? Honor and favorite relationship with God. What's the broader context? What's that? By grace you've been saved. Again, the, the well, I'll just say it, the, the gospel. When we're talking about the gospel, which is the, the centerpiece of Christianity, that Jesus came preaching a gospel, um, talking, well, the word gospel just means like really good news, okay? He's coming and he's saying all this good news. And what's the good news? Um, the good news is that he has come. Remember, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay? So God, who has been separated from us because of our sin, is now come and he's with us. Okay? A transcendent God has really become imminent, very, very close. Okay? And through Jesus' death and the forgiveness of sins, that relationship can be firmed up as being reconciled. So the good news is, you get to be with God. And there's, because of grace, because of grace, the relationship's going to be restored and it's going to be tight and it's going to be healthy. Does that make sense? So we talk about grace usually when we're talking about the gospel. Okay? But here Paul is saying, he's saying, uh, let no corrupting talk, bad talk, corrosive talk, talk that tears down, come out of your mouth, but only talk that's good for building up. Why? Because, again, God has a plan. There's shalom. There's an idea. There's, there's the potential of what's good. And, and we're supposed to work along with that. That's the command. That's what we're supposed to obey. We're supposed to be constructive in how we deal with other people that are made in the image of God. And he says, so let no corrupting talk come out, but only the stuff that builds up. And he says, that it may give grace to those who hear. How we talk, the words that come out of our mouth, uh, are out of our mouth, is actually going to give grace to other people. And then, he, and then he finishes down here, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then in verse, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
There's something huge about the gospel going on right here. And what it is, is the gospel is something that we enter into. It's not something that we passively look at like we're watching TV. The gospel is not simply what God is doing here through Christ Jesus and the grace that goes there. It's us stepping into this environment of grace, this covenant of grace, and there's grace and it's dynamic and there's forgiveness and and I'm being shaped by that. I'm being impacted by that. I'm, I'm I'm living in that, and it's through, through me extending its way out to other people as well. And so it's this dynamic context that I'm a part of. This good news is something that I get to live out in my own life and in the relationships I have with others. And how I talk to others literally brings them into this context of shalom, of grace, of Christ-like forgiveness and acceptance and tenderheartedness. Do you get that? We talk about the gospel so arm's length and transactional and forensic and all this other stuff, when the reality is it's so darn relational. We're with God, and that transforms everything about us. And the most key thing about us are our relationships, people in proximity to us. And, it, and so it begins to just work itself all throughout this. And as we talk, we're able to give grace to other people. As we forgive them, we're, we're dynamically living out the forgiveness that God gave us in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So what we begin to realize is, The law has everything to do with the gospel and grace. The law sets up for us what ought to be, what can be, what should be, where we belong. And grace allows us to stay in that three-legged race with God. It allows us to, even when we mess up, still be with God. Even when we mess up, to be forgiven. Even when we um, feel estranged, for us to have relationship with God and to be able to do this along with him. The New Testament calls that fellowship with the Spirit. And we begin to realize things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, that this relationship is going to shape us and transform us. So the law shows us where we ought to be going. Grace makes that whole thing work and helps us understand how we move forward into this. Does that make sense? So if we just talk about law, we end up with duty. If we just talk about grace, we end up with nothing really matters. There's just forgiveness, and it's like on an automatic dispenser. Just, just kind of do whatever you want. So grace without the law doesn't make sense. Law without grace is this burden that we cannot carry and we need a, a savior of. Okay? If we step into the middle and hold these two things in detention, there's a word I would put to that. And the word is responsible. There's another word I would put to that, and it's discipleship. Let me take the first one first and the second one second, but... The first word here is this, uh, responsibility. We have rule number two at our house. We have three rules for our kids. There's so many rules out there. There's like a million rules out there. You don't need any more rules. You can't even do the ones you already know, okay? We're all in the same boat. And I didn't want my kids being bombarded with like a million rules, and it's just like they, they become neurotic, you know what I'm saying? And so we boiled it down when Mary Jo was really young. We're like, there's only going to be three rules in our house, and we're going to drive those things home. And the three rules are this, don't tell a lie, be responsible, and it's better to um, give than receive. And uh, I'm serious, you don't tell a lie in my house. Um, absolutely rule number one, there's so many aspects of character that go with it. And, and we work through those things like you wouldn't believe. No half-truths, no bending the truth, no anything like that. And I was a youth pastor, and I remember watching parents that thought it was more an honor to their kids to take their word for it when their gut was telling them their kid was lying, um, than to play detective and, and, and sniff out the lie. And I was completely in disagreement with th- those parents. When you are a willing party from an adolescent to continue on in a life of deceit and darkness and duplicity, um, and your gut knows that that's going on, you're doing a horrible disservice to that person by letting them go further and further down a road and more and more momentum. You find it out, you shine light into it, and then you work really, you, you put a whole lot of energy into trying to talk that through and reconcile that thing and correct that thing. You bring it to a head. But so, you know, in our family, um, and it'll be that way, trust me, until um, the kids leave the house, 
you don't tell a lie. Um, better to give than receive. We have our family times every night. We give thanks to God for things. Uh, and then we affirm our kids for the things that we see that they do, sharing and, and giving to each other, um, that really lives out this, this selfless kind of ethic, this sacrificial way of living, um, delay of gratification. We affirm it like crazy, okay? Rule number two is be responsible. We've utterly failed at this. <laughs> it's almost impossible to help people become responsible. Like, so I've kind of put it on this 20-year track in my mind. But people don't naturally accept responsibility. We naturally shirk it. If you can't do your math homework, you'd prefer that the tutor do the homework for you than that you have to suffer through it with them coaching you in it. Does that make sense? So whenever we can pass responsibility off, we tend to do that. We don't naturally want to accept responsibility because accepting responsibility brings about character in the long run, but in the short run, it's a lot of work. And what we don't realize is that character, believe it or not, uh, last week, Ken Hutcherson said, God cares more about our character than our comfort. Totally agree. I also think there's an aspect to it where our character dictates our comfort. That the degree of character we have affects our decisions, affects our relationships, affects our, our maturity and our paradigms and our perspective so that despite trials, we might be able to have joy still. James talks about this. Consider your trials pure joy. Why? Because there's going to be perseverance. Why do you need perseverance? Because you're going to grow up in that and become mature and lack nothing. And so, you know, the, the trials even can be put into a context where you're like, it's okay. When we see somebody have an easy smile, someone older on in years, and they, they have an easy smile even though there's trials, we look at that, and we, no one would ever say, wow, that's really immature. There, there's something so self-evident about that easy smile in the face of difficulties that immediately puts itself on us as being the height of maturity. You know what I'm saying by that? Um, where was I? I don't remember what I was talking about. Second service, blood sugar crash. But the point is... Uh, we need to realize that in accepting responsibility and allowing ourselves to develop character, um, we begin to actually shape our joy, our happiness, um, the kind of life that we're going to get. So character actually affects comfort. Um, that's why God cares so much about character. It's the foundation of who we are. It's how we're shaped. So the, the word here is responsibility. We as Christians need to learn that there's a thing called acceptance of responsibility that we might not be terribly good at. Let me illustrate it this way. In the American church today, there's a program for everything. There's a book for everything. There's um, everybody trying to disciple everybody. And then the statistics show that nobody's getting discipled, right? And here's the, here's the crazy thing. In the New Testament, the word, the Greek word for disciple only ever shows up as a noun. It never once shows up as a verb. There is no you disciple somebody or be discipled. There is only disciple and not disciple. Okay? The closest thing we see to a verb maybe is when Jesus says go and make disciples, but you still see it in a noun form, and you see this idea of go and make them by baptizing them, and so someone is literally identifying with Christ, taking on Christ, being willing to follow Christ, saying that I'm not going to pursue my own agenda, I'm going to bend this way, follow the, the rabbi, the master, the Lord, I'm going I'm to make my life about this, which really is a narrow road and a small kind of gate, I'm going to go this way, okay, and, and become a disciple, and so you go and make disciples by baptizing them, and then teach them. So Jesus is telling his disciples, you, you make a disciple, you ask them if they want to follow Christ, if they want to be um, in this covenant of grace, if they want to accept Christ's forgiveness, be reconciled, and then teach them. So the burden is for you to teach those people who are what? Disciples. The burden isn't for you to disciple them so that 
their degree of discipleness is your responsibility as a teacher. Do you see when we, when we take and make our thinking about discipleship as a verb, where does it put the responsibility? Where does it put the responsibility? It puts it off of the individual onto the leader or, or whoever that person is. And then they're this passive thing that, that, that kind of is, is along for the ride and, and, and there's, no, there's no accountability on, on their part. If we say, look, like Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers are put into the life of, of God's community to equip them, to teach them. Okay, what, what's the idea of equip and to instruct? When you go to a trade show, you're going, why? Because there's good information that's relevant to you developing or gaining skills or aptitude, right? If you skip the whole thing or don't pay attention, what are you going to get? Nothing. Boy, I need a little bit. I'm, I know I'm not a big pastor from Antioch North, but I need a little, little, little bit of something. Um, if you skip, yeah, there we go. If you skip a trade show or you sleep through the whole thing, how much are you going to get? Whose responsibility is it to get something? You got to own it. It's your responsibility. Discipleship is something that is ours. A choice we've made to follow Christ, to obey Christ, to try. That, let I me mean just, let's just camp on the word for two seconds. So here's the interesting thing. If you try, that's really all, I, I think that's really all God cares about. God looks in the heart and he knows what you're trying to do. Man, my daughters bring me a drawing and I look at it and I'm like, man, is that the head? Is, is that the feet? You know, I mean, is that toes or are those eyeballs? Like, I, I don't know what's what. Two years later, but I affirm them. Like, man, this is the greatest drawing ever. I love what they're doing. Two years later, it's like, I see the head. It's, it's this one, you know. Two years from that, it's like, wow, it actually looks like something, right? I, I just care about their engagement and that they're trying, and I affirm that. God doesn't take us doing things imperfectly and, and slap it back at us. He loves it, man. He gets in there and he says, you're getting it. You're following me. You understand that this matters, that that way is bankrupt. You're doing your best, even though it's hard. I love it. I'll hang it up this way, you know? It's either way, it's fine. But God's, I love it. Two years later, he's like, do you realize the effect you're having on the relationships in your, your sphere of influence? Do you realize as you're following me and as you're developing this, this fruit of the Spirit, you're becoming more christ do you, do you realize the effect you're having on other people? You're shaping that community. You're influencing those people. Unbelievable. Two years later, God's like, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you in mighty ways because your character is developed. I'm going to put you in leadership. I'm going to use you to make an impact. But God doesn't care about where the head is. God cares about where the heart is. I didn't mean it to sound weird like that, but God cares about where the heart is. He cares that you're willing. He cares that you try. Does that make sense? So the idea here is responsibility. Let me, we're going to move on to reconciliation here in just a second, but um, let's just write some of these words down. Uh, try. Do we, you got to realize like just like um, visual, when you have a visual field in front of you, it's discipleship, sorry. <laughs> um, when, there's another word I think I was getting at too in that, but whatever. Um, when we look at things, we, we focus on something, but we all know that we're very aware of our periphery, Okay. It's, we're not giving attention to it, but we know it's there. If a ball gets thrown at us, we're going to see it. You understand what I'm saying? Spiritually speaking, we've, we tend to focus on things about Christianity, about our spiritual walk, about life. 
and we focus on those things, but there's a whole lot of other things in our periphery that we're kind of subtly aware of. You want to know why I think more of our prayers don't get answered? It's because I think the Holy Spirit usually stands in the periphery trying to have a conversation with us about something that we're not focused on. That we don't always put our focus quite where God would have it, but, but usually more where we want it. And the Holy Spirit stands in the periphery and says, I've got a conversation here. I, I would love to work with you on this. I would bless you on this. I would move miraculously on this. If you would focus here and realize that this periphery stuff is still on the playing field. It still matters. And, and I think that we've got to just walk up to God and say, man, my hand, it's, here it is. I left all to follow you. My hands are wide open. I'm all in. I got nothing held in reserve. You know, I don't have any chips that I'm kind of holding behind me just in case this thing doesn't quite pan out. I'm all in. Um, so what do you want to talk to me about, God? This? Really? Okay. Let's work on that. And, and so there's this thing that, that we got to realize that I, if we really accept responsibility, God's going to take us in all sorts of crazy ways, working on all sorts of crazy things we might not have recognized or thought of, or wanted to deal with. But we do it because we're living what I, when we started Antioch, we had a, fr a phrase called theologically driven. There was all these drivens, this driven, that driven. We were just like, we just want to be theologically driven. It means we put God in the middle, and what we know to be true about God, what we, what we see of God, that's what dictates everything else. Everything else revolves around that. And that's when we accept discipleship, when we accept responsibility for being a Christian. That's what we're really doing is we're saying, man, God, I'm putting you in the center. All glory to you. What do you want? And so we've got to learn how to have this conversation about responsibility, not about the law, not just about grace, but that, that both of these are a part of the gospel. And when, when we, and we get to choose whether we're going to accept the responsibility of being a disciple following Christ. Before the, the Christians were called Christians, they were called Christians. Look in the book of Acts. They were called Christians first at Antioch, um, which is prophecy. Actually, to, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but in the, the New Testament book of Acts, there was a church called Antioch, where we get our name. But they were called Christians first there. People who are following this guy called Christ will call them Christians. But before that, um, the name for Christians was what? Does anyone remember? Followers of the way. Followers of the way. It's not some thing you do because, yeah, I believe there's a God, or, yeah, I raised my hand once upon a time, or, yeah, I, anything. It's... <laughs> That's the way, the truth, and the life. His name is Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I go where he goes. I follow him. I'm a follower of the way. You can call me a Christian too because I take that name. His righteousness is my righteousness. But the idea here is it's not my life anymore, but it's Christ who lives through me, in me. Paul says that in Galatians. Um, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've died to myself. That's the baptism part again. And now I live for Christ. I accept responsibility. I follow. This is what my life is. That's Christianity, right? So how does this then come to the second part? I want to talk briefly about reconciliation. Ephesians 4, and, and, and I'll tell you why I came up with this real quick. Um, I want to talk about reconciliation um, because this week I was kind of having, I was, when I was in college, Many of you have had the same experience. Maybe you have some friends that still do this. But when people get too drunk, um, they get to the I love you man stage. You know what I'm talking about? I love you, man. Like, and then they start crying for no reason. And then it's like, why can't we all just get along? You know, and, and, and you sit there from like midnight till 2 o'clock. This was me in college going like, this really? This is hilarious. Um, what I've realized this week is that a sleep-deprived father of four acts a lot like a drunk man. I'm just, sometimes I just sit around like, man, why can't we all just get along? I just don't understand why there's so much drama. Like, you know, and, and, I, and I'm beginning to realize there's a lot in common between college drunk and a married father of four. So that, that's why I just was like, man, I just see so many, so many broken relationships everywhere. Um, and, and stemming from our mouths and things like that. And so here's... Paul's command to us. 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Who did all the work when, when I was forgiven by God through Jesus Christ? I didn't do the work. God did the work. Christ did the work. If you're going to forgive somebody, who's going to do all the work? You. If you're going to be reconciled in the name of Jesus Christ to somebody, you're going to forgive somebody, put aside all malice, see them tenderheartedly, who's going to do all the work? You are. Why do we normally not reconcile? <laughs> Forget that, man. It's too much work. I'm not going to do that. My wife and I, when we planted Antioch, had a, a relationship that went really sour. And it was really painful. Like, we planted Antioch pretty beat up. Um, and I remember learning a lesson. It just came to me so clear in the car. Tam and I are driving. And she says of this couple, she says, why are they so bad? And, and immediately I kind of realized, I was like, and I said that to her. I said, Tamara, they're not bad. I know how they treat their kids. I know how they open their home. I know how they love people. I know how they give. Um, so I kind of said to her, I said, I, I know they're not all bad, we're just getting a bad slice of it. Here's us here. And what I, what I recognize is, man, even Hitler probably loved on some people, you know. Nobody's all bad. You just get a slice of them that's all bad because of hurt, because of pain, because of misunderstanding. So how do you turn the slice really becomes the question, right? It's not that they're so evil that it's like God bring down lightning from the sky. It's like, no, man, there's a disagreement here. There's a problem. It needs to be fixed. Um, if I really understand the gospel and, and, and what it means to live the gospel, I'll, I'll put in the sweat equity myself. Oh, you know what? That looks a lot like being responsible because what, is, what does the gospel say to me? Love my enemies. Pray for my enemies. You know, enemy meaning the person who's against me. I'm getting a bad slice. Pray for them. You'll burn heaping coals on their head. What does that mean? That they're going to actually feel bad about hating you. And they'll probably soften and turn that thing a little bit. It also says turn the other cheek. Why? Because if you don't return, if you don't, if you don't, you know, when someone draws their gun on you and if you draw your gun back, guess what? You know, bullets are going to fly. You know, if they draw a gun on you, you don't, you don't draw your gun back and you turn the other cheek, it's pretty soon they're going to feel stupid. Everyone sees me and I'm standing there holding a gun. You know what I'm saying? You turn the other cheek. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 says this. We'll just start it in uh, verse 22, 5.20. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is ethics. If you want to learn about ethics, you can turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the heart of Christian ethics. It says this, But I say to you, verse 22, chapter 5, Matthew, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell, uh, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What? What's he saying there? Jesus is saying, you're offering to God that says, I love you, God. I'm all in. I'm responsible. I'm committed. I'm taking this thing. Okay? You're offering your worship, okay? You're, you're, you're giving a tithe. You're going to help a single mom. You're going to help an orphan and widow. You're going to serve in church. Whatever you're going to do that's sacrificial, and you're offering it up to God. You're going to do that. And God says, 
No, 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 no. I don't want to talk to you yet. Because this side of the gospel, the good news about relationship and joy and peace and shalom, can't really work if you're bringing into it brokenness, unreconciled relationships, baggage, things that ought to be addressed. And he says, look, get your priorities straight. Put down your offering. Go run. Live the gospel out here. Put that behind you. Honor me with that. And then come back to me so that we can sit down at the table and have a good old conversation. You know, I, when my daughter, like, gets into a fight with her sister and then comes to me and says, Hey, Dad, can we go in the backyard and play? I, I, don't, I don't want that. Even if it's father-daughter time, I don't want that. I want you to go be reconciled with your sister so that when we're playing in the yard, I can rejoice and enjoy life, that everything is squared. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, look, even if you didn't wrong somebody, but somebody's got something against you, before you go play in the backyard with God, you go fix it. Reconcile in the name of Christ. Forgive them as God forgave you in Christ Jesus. Okay? Boy, that sounds like a lot of work. Work sounds a lot like responsibility. It'd be a lot easier for me just to put it on Ken. He's the one that's the discipler. Antioch's not good enough. If this church was better, people sitting around me would be better. That person might not be offended with me or, or had offended me. We, just, we need a better set of elders that are going to perfect our church. Oh, I wish I, I wish I lived in Minneapolis. I could go to John Piper's church. He perfects everybody. He's the best disciple there is. I'm, I'm being facetious. When we accept responsibility, we realize, man, there's a reason that Jesus says this is, this is an uphill road. This, this isn't the easy road, the wide road. This is the narrow road. Man, and it's not, it's, not, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for him. And as we're following him, it's not going to be easy for us. Oh, but that's right. Rules, the things God asks of us, obedience, his requests, I'm smart enough to know those are actually good. They all point to something. They're all a part of engineering. No parks and tour management, right? I'll do it because I have faith in God, because I understand this is all good news, and I'll, I'll put in the work. See how that, that plays itself out. And God meets us there. Here, let's, let's fast forward on a couple things real quick. When we try, we realize how hard it is. When we realize how hard it is, we ask for help. There's a real correlation between discipleship and our degree of relationship with God. You don't try much, you don't venture much, you don't care much. There's not much reason to talk to God, is there? We try, we get excited, we want, we yearn, we hurt when we fail. We go to God and there's a level of humility in that, but God forgives and then we go, no way. You really are relational, God. This, you're really gonna keep me in this three-legged race. You're really gonna help me work this thing out. Man, I wanna do this so much more. God, help me. Please continue to help me. I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Savior, Jesus Christ, like it says in Peter. So the more we put in, the more we realize, and the more we need. Paul said that he was the worst of all sinners. And I think that if you want to map that out, it's because Paul knew this much and did this much. And Paul was like, man, there's such a gap of implementation in my life. And I know what perfection really is. I write scripture. <laughs> Man, it's hard to do. You know, and so even though he, he does more than, than us, you know, like, we don't know as much as he does. You know, and he's like, man, I'm the worst of all sinners, but glory be to God. We all fall short of the, the glory of God, but man, we can accept Christ's righteousness as our own. I don't want my own good deeds. I don't want that I do more than you. I don't care about that. I don't want it. 
I want Christ. I want my position in Christ. I want that covenant. I want this because this works and it's finished and it's done and it's good. This little work in progress, my own little sandcastle, I don't want it. So Paul's like, man, I'm the worst of all sinners. Give me more grace, God. I'll be humble, man. I just need you, God. Work in through me. Grow me. You get the credit. Paul got it. Why? Because he accepted responsibility probably more than anyone we see in Scripture. That's the model. What did he say about his his role of discipleship? Want to know how you can sum up Paul's view of discipleship? Follow me as I follow Christ. It's like, man, I'm following Christ. I own it. You can look to me as an example of what you should be. A disciple, a person who follows Jesus Christ. You get what I'm saying there? That's his view of discipleship. Follow me as I follow Christ. So now here's the deal. Let's come back real quickly to reconciliation. Marcel, uh, our friend from the Congo, was here for the Justice Conference, and he came and talked to the staff for a little bit. It was really interesting. thought he was done. He talked for like two minutes, just kind of high hello. And then all of a sudden he leans forward, and out of nowhere he says, handle your disagreements well. And we're kind of like, oh, what are you talking about? He says, when you, when you disagree with each other, you handle that well. Because it is amazing how quickly a mosquito becomes an elephant. And, he, and then he kind of goes around and looks at everybody in the eye. A mosquito becomes an elephant. And in my mind, I'm like, man, it's just like in James, where James says your, your tongue is a very little small thing, but you start throwing around words, you know what I mean? It can set a whole forest on fire. You ever seen a forest that's burned up? Take two generations to, to fix you can scorch a whole, I mean, just some small little spark starts the whole thing going. And, and Marcel's like, it, it, how quickly a mosquito becomes an elephant. And then he says this, and I'll never forget it. He kind of drew it out on the table with his finger. But he said, when you disagree, each person goes and tells their tribe. He's coming from the Congo. He understands what tribalism does. Whose tribe are you on? Let's choose up sides. Let's this, let's that, right? He understands what tribalism does, and he says, when, when you do that, then there's no putting it back together. <clears throat> I've noticed something really interesting. When a girl breaks up with a guy, she tells, she, first thing she does, she goes to her mom, tells the mom all the reasons that that guy is the worst guy in the world. And then a week later, when she gets gets back together with that guy, the mom still hates the guy, okay? When you go tell your team that only hears your side of the story, never hears the other side of the story, even if this relationship can be patched up, guess what? Just like Marcel said, you never put it back together again. This is how he finished it. I want to give you guys this, and then we'll make an application and be done. Marcel says, it's like the trees in the forest. You pull up one tree, all the roots are connected, you pull up the whole thing. And he basically says, when it's gone, when the gossip has gone so far, you can't separate it out. It's, it's now traveled through the whole root system and it'll pull the whole forest out. We need to live theologically centered lives. Put God at the center. He's the center of gravity. Everything revolves around him. We obey because you know what? That's what's best. Not just best for God and for other people, but ultimately what's best for us. And we work hard at that. Why? Because it's not my responsibility to do it for you or your responsibility to do it for me. It's our responsibility as disciples to try, to get excited about trying. Do you know that we're defined and shaped by our rituals? If you make a cross before each meal, I pretty much begin to see you that way. If you have a certain drink at Starbucks, I begin to see you that way. If you drive to work a certain way or walk to work a certain way, I'll begin to define you that way. If you dress or do your hair a certain way, I'll begin to define you by that. Our rituals define us. But we can define our rituals. If we really want, we can drive to work differently tomorrow. You'll be stressed out all day. You'll end up cursing out a bunch of people because there's studies showing how that like stresses you out if you go to you do it for a week guess what 
It's your new ritual. You can listen to somebody coming to you with gossip and say, listen, I don't want to entertain that. God loves that person. There's dignity in that person. I don't care what went wrong. This isn't going to make it better. I don't want to hear it. It can be the first time you've ever said that way, that, that way. But after a week, guess what? That's your new habit pattern, your new way of doing things, your new ritual. And we can define and shape our rituals. This is the generation that is completely given up on reading the Bible, what, what used to be called quiet time. We can start tomorrow and start reading our Bible and let God talk through Scripture to us. What does he want from us? Why does he want it? And, and as we're praying through that, God kind of steers us. You know how God steers us? A little bit this way is the law. A little bit this way is grace. But as we're reading day in and day out, sometimes we need a little bit more law. Sometimes we need a little bit more grace. And God, day by day, kind of gives us what we need to keep us on track. He steers us through Scripture. It's, it's the prayer language of the saints is reading Scripture, especially the Psalms. Um, you can define your rituals because you're, and you want to. Why? Because your rituals are going to define you. So who are you going to go talk to today? Who are you going to go pursue? Who are you going to put some work or sweat equity into? What relationship are you going to fix even though you don't want to, even though it feels like work? You're going to do it because it's right. Because that's what God wants before you go back and talk to God. And talking to God matters so much to you that you'll do any amount of work over here. I believe so much. Like I've been a part of, of groups of Christians. And I'm a part of groups of Christians in this church. The staff at this church. Amazing. I've been a part of groups where you look at it and you're like, man, this is so good. This is so amazing. If people talk bad about Christians around these people, they're actually going to do it like feeling guilty because, you know, it's the only time they might feel guilty about bagging on Christians. But th that's possible for this group of believers, for, for us, if we collectively try and accept responsibility and work in each other's lives and help each other and band together and nurture and encourage and, and use life-giving words. We live the gospel out in relationship and in community and we forgive and we ask forgiveness and we're tender and we build up and we don't tear down and this whole thing works it out. And man, it's a lot of character building and a lot of defining and shaping our rituals. But then together, we're growing up in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And people will see that and marvel. It's possible. It's happening. I long for it. I long for it. Father, we just commit, we commit our relationships to you. We commit our speech to you. We commit our understanding of scripture to you. We, we commit our failings to you. Pick up our broken pieces and help us continue to hit the reset button and start anew. Help us to have a healthy understanding of your scripture, Old Testament and new. To understand the context for grace. To be amazed by grace. God, I pray that you become the greatest desire in our life. If we want you more than we want anything else, it will shape how we interact with everything else. Just imprint yourself on us, Father. We just pray. Pray that for this church. Pray that for our, our children's ministries, the kids that are being born. I pray for the missionaries, the, the people that are going on trips. I pray for the other churches and the relationship we have with the other churches in this community, that in all of those things, we would live in such a way as to bring you glory. We pray that in Christ's name.